Well, good evening, friends. Great to be with you. Toby, thank you for the introduction, and thank you to you and Dave and Tarek and many other folks who have been working behind the scenes to make this evening happen. I am really excited to be with you all. There is nowhere, I could truly, truly say there is nowhere I would rather be than here 45 minutes from now. Um, because for the next 45 minutes, I am going to try to talk, but what I'm really looking forward to uh, is the following uh, half hour, 45 minutes, how much time we want to take for some interaction. Uh, because I am very keenly aware when I'm in places like this that there are fantastic questions and perspectives from people of all ages, including Donum Day students huddled in the back corner back there. Uh, and in fact, I would love for the quest first question to be asked by somebody under the age of 20. So someone under the age of 20, think about what question you want to ask as we get going uh, on the Q&A. Um, so let me uh, try to start the conversation off with a few perspectives. A few years ago, I was visiting friends in the city of St. Louis, and uh, very sweetly, the kids of the family made a welcome banner for me. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but their banner said, Welcome, Andy Crouch. I'm so, <laughs> so delighted that they had taken the time to make this banner, and they had also decorated the banner. This was shortly after my book, The TechWise Family, came out. And the interesting thing um, is, that, is the way they portrayed the book. So the... Uh, if you, it's a little hard to see, but the decoration on this, this child's version of the TechWise family is, looks like an iPad with a big red X through it. In fact, Nate, if we go back to the previous uh, big view, over on the left is another iPad with an X through it. <laughs> so it's very clear what these kids thought my book was about. Now, I want to tell you, this is not the cover of my book. It has, it has like a little house turning down the volume on a volume dial. It does not have an iPad with an X through it. I do not put Xs through my iPads. I'm using an iPad tonight. It has my talk notes on it. Um, I'm not anti-technology. In fact, I love technology, partly because my first great love was coding. When I was uh, in, oh gosh, yeah, this is Python script that I wrote. I'll tell you a little more about this in a moment. But when I was uh, 11 years old, my dad brought home a computer terminal. I realize none of you have any idea what this is. This is back when universities had a computer. And the computer center held the computer, but you could also dial up at 300 bits per second uh, and watch as your basic program uh, sort of stuttered its way out, like one letter at a time. Um, and I started coding. I, by the time I was in seventh grade, I was manning, I was, we don't say that anymore, I was personing the uh, help desk uh, at Syracuse University's computer center, helping people with the computer. I have loved coding. This is a little script I wrote for the prayer bots we use at Praxis. I work for an organization called Praxis. We're a Christian nonprofit that works with entrepreneurs. We have about 500 people in our community. We, wanna, we want them all to be prayed for. So we've coded a prayer bot that prays for them every day. It's a really beautiful thing. That is actually not true. Um, but what the prayer bot does do is it picks five names from our community every day and emails them two weeks ahead and says, hey, we're going to be, we real people are going to be praying for you. And, and we collect their e email back if they choose to send us prayer requests back and then it pops it into our Slack channel. And, I, and so I wrote the Python script that kind of runs all this. And I just want to also point out that I'm especially proud of this little function that generates a, a kind of properly punctuated list, English list. And you'll notice the important default setting, Oxford comma equals true. This is, uh, really there should be no need for that setting because Oxford comma equals true is an axiom that all of us should live by. But point being, 
I love technology. Uh, I probably love it too much sometimes. I admire people who build it. Uh, I love to be friends with people who build it, and I use it all the time. I just want it in its proper place. So I did write this book a few years ago, The TechWise Family, and um, uh, very often what people think uh, is something like what my, the, the children of my friends thought. They, they come to a talk like this, and they think, oh, thank goodness, I really need some help on screen time limits for kids. <laughs> so I want to begin, if you're here to hear about screen time limits for kids, I want to begin by dis disappointing you in three ways. Uh, I am not actually here primarily, at least in this er opening uh, conversation opener, to talk about screens. I actually think the story of technology is about something much deeper than screens. And so I want us to start thinking beyond just all the glowing rectangles that have filled our lives. So this is not actually a talk about screens. I'm going to talk about what I call devices, and I'll explain more about that. Second, definitely not a talk about limits. I, I think parenting by limits is like the worst kind of parenting. And all parenting involves a certain amount of this but it's a terrible way to kind of frame what we're doing as we try to help little munchkins grow up into fully functioning human beings. And limits are, are a very, very small part of great families. And so, of course, I think we need limits on all kinds of things in our lives. Um, and I do have thoughts, I suppose, about what, how we might limit our screens and other devices, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But this is not primarily a talk about limits. This is a talk about what do we really long for in our lives? What do we long for in our homes? What do we long for um, as children? And what do we long for when we're long past our, our own childhood? Because um, I would much rather talk about what we long for than limits. I don't think any of us long for limits, per se. And finally, screen time, no, not screens, not limits, and definitely not just about the kids. This is not at all a talk about kind of how we can solve some problem that we ascribe to people under a certain age. This is a talk about all of us in this room. And part of the reason is that when we ask kids about their own family's experience with technology, one of the most fascinating things we find out is that they actually have a lot of opinions uh, about their parents' use of technology. <laughs> so my daughter wrote a book, My TechWise Life, which is a follow-up to my book. And, and uh, it's a wonderful book by, uh, written when she was 19 years old, a kid's perspective on these things. We'd love for you to you know, uh, read it or at least buy it. You don't really have to read it, but do buy it. Um, <laughs> and Amy and our, our friends and colleagues at Barna put together some research in advance of this book. And one of the things we did is we asked 13... I think it was 13 to 21-year-olds, so included some you know, late adolescents, early adults. Uh, we asked them in, in free response, that is without providing any answer ahead of time, this question. If you could change one thing in your relationship with your parents, what would it be? And some of you who still are living with your parents, uh, I'd be very curious what you would say. Uh, if you could change one thing, what would it be? Well, there was one answer that came up more often than any other, and it was... I wish my parents would spend less time on their devices and more time talking to me. That's what the kids said they wanted. So I do not think this is a kid's issue. I think it's a people, a person's issue, a human issue. And so this is a talk for all of us to rethink uh, the story that we're part of and where we're going. So what is the story we're part of? 
Um, well, it starts with the very basic story of what it is to be human. We are persons, you could say. And I have come to think that the best way to define a person is a heart, soul, mind, strength complex designed for love. Persons are this beautiful, mysterious combination of at least four things, and if you miss any one of them, you're underestimating what it is to be a person. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we are emotion and desire that leads to will, that's heart. We are depth of self uh, that, that reaches down into the depths of who we are, but also reaches out to some ultimate reality beyond us, that's soul. We are cognitive, interpreting, intellecting creatures that think our way through the world as well as feel our way, although we often think by feeling, and, but we also can sort of rationally engage the world, that's mind. And then of course we're made with these bodies, with all their limitations, but also all their amazing capabilities, and that's strength. And it's, we're all four together. You, you are not a brain without a body, you're not a heart without a mind, you're not a mind without a soul, you know, you can do all the permutations. You are a heart, soul, mind, strength complex designed for love. And we persons find ourselves in a, a world that seems to invite our energy and invite our activity. And we look all the way back in the history of human beings, and there's basically th three things that we find. <laughs> we find art, which is interesting, all the, all the way back, like tens of thousands of years back, we find human beings, recognizably like us, making art. We find actually attention to the dead, so the burial of the dead in a, in a ritual way, in a careful way, it also goes all the way back. And, and then, of course, we find tools. And tools are where our story of technology begins. Tools are extensions of the heart, soul, mind, strength capabilities of human beings. We use tools to take the things that we initially can do just with our bodies and our minds and our emotions and our depth of self and extend that into the world further and with kind of greater acuity and um, kind of power, you might say, through the tools we develop. So of course we naturally think about um, tools that extend strength uh, of many kinds. So you think about a hammer, which you definitely can with your bare hands and material that you might find around you in the natural world. You could fasten things together just with your bare hands, but if you can fabricate, fabricate some kind of nail or whatever, and then use a hammer to like hammer that nail in, you're going to get a stronger fastening than you can with your bare hands. So the, the tool extends human strength, certainly in a particular direction with a particular kind of amplification of human ability. Um, Although I suppose it also very much extends mind because we, once we can hammer things together, we start to be able to imagine building bigger things. I don't think anyone could have built this building. It certainly involved more things than hammers, but uh, no one even could have imagined this building until we had tools to build it. And once we have the tools, we start to be able to imagine reshaping space in quite amazing ways like the architects of this building did. So it's not just strength though. It's, uh, you know, so what does the pen extend, the pen or the pencil? Well, definitely extends the mind. Uh, in fact, as a writer, I, when I really have to think something through, I walk away from my computer and I just pick up a pencil and I try to write it out or diagram it out. Um, but then when you think about using a pencil or a pen to write poetry, it can actually extend the heart. It can kind of take our, our internal emotions and put them into the world in a form that other people can read and can even be read beyond our own lifetime, maybe. So all tools 
extend a heart, soul, mind, strength capability. That's the millennia-old story of the human race. From the very beginning, we were doing this. There is a new thing that has come into our world in roughly the last 100 years. And that, I'm going to use a word, borrowing it from a philosopher named Albert Borgman, who's shaped my thinking on this so much. We're going to call this new thing devices. And the difference between tools and devices is that to an amazing degree, we discovered about 100 years ago how to get uh, tool-like things, let me say, that operate by themselves. So a device, the principal kind of distinguishing feature of a device is that unlike a tool, which always requires a human being to operate it, a device can operate on its own. It's autonomous, it can be automatic, it's through the revolutions in control systems, cybernetics, and power systems, electromagnetic, harnessing uh, various kinds of electromagnetic energy, that we were able to power these things that operate on their own, do things for us without us having to be involved. So, um, or at least with less human involvement, um, and maybe less direct human skill required. So, I suppose the device that corresponds to the hammer, um, there may be more than one, but uh, one very clear example is one of the coolest things like at Home Depot, which is a nail gun, right? How many people in here are blessed to own a nail gun of your very own? Yes, yes, I see those hands. You are very, you are fortunate uh, I don't mean to be gendered. I do notice it's mostly guys because every, most guys dream of owning a nail gun. Dave Lomas, you own a nail gun. Oh my gosh. Like I already respected you, but now I, I admire you, all right? Because what's the thing about a nail gun? Well, it, ampli- it, it takes the thing you could do with a hammer, right? But amplifies it way more and it operates quasi independently of human strength and skill. And In this way, maybe I should admire Dave Lomas less for owning a nail gun (laughs) because if you can really wield a hand, how many people, uh, do we have like literally uh, like carpenters in here trained? So you're a a carpenter. Uh, If we watched you wield a hammer, (laughs) uh, you've learned through tens of thousands of hammer strikes to modulate strength through your, your arm and shoulder and so forth to produce amazing results. I'm just sure of it. Uh, you know, I don't know what, what kind of carpenter you do, but, um, and, I, and I really know that's true because if I tried to take over your job, <laughs> we, it would be very embarrassing to have you all watch me take this apparently simple tool called a hammer and try to wield it with skill. Well, the nice thing about the nail gun is it doesn't require as much skill. It, it's super useful, don't get me wrong, it's very fast, but basically you just point it at the things to be nailed and go, right? And this is the difference between devices and tools. Devices require a human being to, to, uh, they don't just extend us uh, or extend our abilities, they also require us to extend ourselves into the world through strength and skill, tools do. But devices often relieve us of having to exercise strength and skill, in this case, in the fastening of objects. And this is the story of the last 100 years, the gradual replacement of tools by devices. So if you think, just one more quick example here, 
Um, if you think about, uh, it's not a great example for San Francisco. You have a fairly temperate climate. But if you think about a climate where you need, <laughs> is that not true? <laughs> it's, it seem, always seems really cold here to me, but uh, I must visit at the wrong times. Um, if you think about a climate where you need, uh, let's say, cool air, um, for a long time, I suppose, the only way to get yourself even moderately cool in a hot, humid environment, you can do it with your own hand. Like, you can just sort of fan yourself, right? I've always wondered about the thermodynamics of this. Like, am I warming myself up more by the sweat and energy of this than I'm getting cooling? I'm not sure. But you can do it just with your body, right? But of course, we quickly learn to pick something up and fan ourselves with it. Um, and I learned piano at St. James's AME Zion Church where every pew had both a Bible and a fan. They were like the two liturgical elements of St. James's AME Zion Church. And, and people in the hot months would pick, the, pick up the fan. And that's a very mechanically efficient way to cool yourself off. But of course, then we get the first device, which is the, the plug-in fan. And now we have something that blows air at me without me having to fan myself. So this is, that's where I've crossed the line from tool to device. That kind of, that horizontal dividing line is basically crossing the line into autonomy. It's just blowing at me. Oh, very nice, right? I no longer have to wave my arm around with, with or without a fan. Well, where is this going? The iterative progress of technology is to create ever more complete disengagements of human beings while also providing the good thing we want. So if you think about cool air, uh, what's the next step beyond the fan that you plug into the wall? Well, of course, it's the centrally installed uh, HVAC system that now invisibly just moderates the climate uh, in a room. I never have to think about it. Once I just tell it what temperature I want, it just does it without me thinking about it at all as opposed to having to plug in the fan. And the sort of end state of this process of improvement, I'm going to call easy everywhere. Easy everywhere is the dream of technology. The dream of no longer having to exert ourselves in the world to get the good things we want. Uh, I don't have to fan myself. I just adjust the thermostat. And ah, it's the right temperature. <laughs> it was incredibly easy and it, it becomes incredibly ubiquitous. Uh, all progress, I want to say, all of what we call technological progress involves this kind of progression towards the vision of easy everywhere. I even think it's going to happen with the nail gun. So the problem with the nail gun is you, you still have to someone, have someone pointing it in the right direction, but I think I know where the nail gun is going, and I bet there's, there may be someone in this room working on this solution right now, and here's where I think it's going to go. Think about roofing, where you have to do a lot of nailing, and I'm very glad that roofers have access to nail guns to make their lives a little easier, but there's another step. There's an easy everywhere further step. So I think what it's going to be is a nail gun Roomba. Right? So, you know, the Roomba, the little robot vacuum, right? So you're going to be able to put this thing up on the roof. I swear, I bet you it's going to happen in, if it hasn't already happened. And you'll be able to stand on the ground with a beer, obviously, and watch as this thing just goes... Or, of course, if it's like my Roomba, it'll go... But in any case, it'll get the nailing done, and we'll just stand there and we'll be like, oh, this is awesome. Like, easy roofing everywhere. That's where technology wants to go, all the time, every single time. At a small price, <laughs> which is you no longer have anything to do. 
You just get to enjoy. You just get to consume. That sounds good. What could possibly go wrong? But maybe something is traded, if not lost. Just one more example. Think about transportation. How would you get from one place to another um, farther than you can easily walk? Well, for a very long time in the Americas and, and many other parts of the world, the best answer uh, was, ah, you're thinking drive? Are you thinking drive? Is that why you're doing this? <laughs> you have to go further back. First, you have to do this, <laughs> right? Okay, so for a long time, the way you would get a long distance was ride a horse, right? So that's the transportation kind of extension of human beings. Horses, of course, are not tools, but they're, they're extensions of our desire to transport ourselves, and they served beautifully in that way for a long time. Of course, the horses were, were replaced by the mechanical car, the horseless carriage. So we get these early um, internal combustion engine-driven vehicles. Well, then we keep iterating and improving. We get something like essentially a computer on wheels. So that's you know, roughly what a Tesla is, right? But this has a logic that keeps going. So already we've gone from a highly engaging thing. The horse is not gonna take you anywhere by itself. It has to be sort of ridden and directed. The car operates with a level of sort of efficiency and power tool-like, but still has to be driven. The Tesla will, for long stretches, maybe take care of most of the driving, but you're still there. But of course, the end state is this cute little thing that unfortunately was scrapped and isn't going to be made this way. And now, I don't think the Waymo cars that ride around here are nearly as cute as this one, so I'm just keeping it in my presentation. Um, the little Google, you know, early Google autonomous mobile, whatever they called it, and which is obviously the self-driving car. And this is, we all sort of instinctively understand this progression from a horse to a tool to a more, a more complex tool um, that's getting much more like a device to the full easy everywhere of just easy transportation whenever you want it without you having to do anything. I just want us to feel what we lose when we move along this continuum because a horse is a heart, soul, mind, strength creature. How many of you have had the chance to ride a horse? A lot. Uh, I haven't had many chances, but a couple years ago I got to ride a horse. And, and I will tell you, like when you go up to a horse, it's an emotional experience. Like they are, they are beautiful in an extraordinary way. So your heart is kind of engaged by this creature. There is a soul to soul feeling when you're with a horse. I don't know, I don't know if horses are in heaven or that kind of thing, but I just know that, that deep calls to deep when you're with, a, with that beautiful, beautiful creature that, that we've domesticated and, and have, they've kind of come along us for so many millennia of human history. Um, it requires mind, it requires intelligence to ride a horse. And it definitely turns out, I found out the next day, there's all kinds of muscles that I... <laughs> didn't know I needed, that I didn't really have ready for the job, and the next day they complained. Like, it's a, a bodily activity to ride a horse. Heart, soul, mind, strength. So then we move to the mechanical car, and when you think about those early mechanical cars, like the one that was just up there until Nate took it down, um, they were beautiful things. There's, there's 
a lot of folks, now they tend to be a little older, but you can find them at car shows everywhere, still taking care of those beautiful mechanical vehicles because they awakened heart. And they also required still quite a bit of strength to maintain and use. You get to today's modern computers on wheels. Um, I remember when my daughter was 16 when we got our last new car. It was a Ford C-Max, nothing super special, but I wanted to show her the car. And I had these wonderful memories of my dad, like explaining to me carburetors and fuel intakes and, you know, here's where you change the oil. I was like, I should show Amy, you know, dad needs to give her a little lesson in cars. So we go out to see the new C-Max. I'm like, well, Amy, let's pop the hood on this uh, new vehicle. I'll show you around. Well, I don't know if you know, <laughs> these days, you probably know, like under the hood, it's like a big plastic shield. And that's all you see. I'm like, so... Well, under there somewhere is the engine. <laughs> and this blue thing is where you put the windshield wiper in, fluid in, and we're done, right? My daughter was not impressed. There's not, that, there's not much to engage your mind in that. Not much strength required, though I, have I taught her to change tires and rotate tires. Um, and of course, we've taught, taught our kids to drive manual transmission like that. Every child should learn a manual transmission. So both of our kids, it's caused them lingering trauma and they need therapy. But other than that, it was great. Uh, but the natural progression, now, we get to the self-driving car, if it ever really arrives in kind of widespread use. And already Waymo has released the, the videos, you might've seen them, of the first customers of the self-driving car. <laughs> and they get in and there's no driver. And it takes off very slowly, like a 75-year-old grandmother, and drive, pulls away from the curb. And, and you know, the, the interior camera's on the faces of these like ecstatic expressions of, oh, it's working, it's working, we're driving, oh, it's driving, no, we're not, we don't have to steer, we just tell it where we wanna go. So there's this like ecstasy, which will last for exactly one ride. And the third or fourth time you get into a self-driving car, should they ever arrive? And I have opinions about whether it's actually gonna happen. But suppose it does. Suppose it does exactly as imagined, like perfect, easy transportation everywhere. The third or fourth time and every other time after that, you are going to be so bored. You're gonna be like, oh boy, where's the Netflix on this thing? Because there's nothing for us to do. That's the trade. Maybe a worthwhile trade, but it's having some interesting effects. So let's just unpack those for a few minutes here. I want to think about the effect of this trade, that is, when we crossed the device threshold and when we began to pursue easy everywhere, for all its evident benefits, what did we potentially give up? Let's think first, we'll talk about family in a moment, but let's actually think about the world of uh, let's say the life of human beings as workers. We human beings are made for a rhythm of work and rest. This is how we are, I think, constituted uh, as image bearers of God. We're made to work in the world and then also rest in the world. What has happened to the sort of built-in rhythm of work and rest for human beings as easy everywhere has become more and more part of our lives? Now you might think, well, we have a lot more rest. Like we modern people are just the most rested people in history, right? <laughs> like we sleep deeply at night because really we've had so little to do during the day. The robots are just doing it for us most of the time. We, we have, we've become free of anxiety. We just live with this deep serenity in the world. Does this sound wrong. <laughs> this is not what's actually happening. Because what's actually strangely happened is a ratcheting up of a, of a long 
a parallel story in human history, which I would call toil and leisure, that somehow we human beings who are made for work and rest, for glad improvement of the world, that's work, and then glad contemplation of the fruits of improving the world, that's rest. Instead, we end up with toil, which is this feeling of just constant fruitless work, and leisure, which is like exhausted, frantic attempts to reclaim a sense of restedness. And this has accelerated as easy everywhere has spread. That does not sound right, does it? And yet it's happened. So there's many components to this. One component that should trouble us is how much toil is entailed in giving some of us the experience of easy everywhere. We are dimly aware of this. We sometimes find it hard not to avert our eyes from it, but when we think about, for example, the rare earths and and precious uh, metals of various kinds that are the crucial inputs to our electromagnetic systems and our battery technology, and we know how hard it is to get those out of the earth, we know that there's a whole lot of people around the world who are toiling working in really difficult conditions to liberate from the earth the the inputs to our easy everywhere devices. And so that troubles us when we think about it. But I'm also struck that somehow easy everywhere has, has, has sort of awakened a demand for other people to provide all kinds of things that are not very meaningful to create. And this is something I ran across a, a I think around Halloween a couple years ago, I realized that you can go on Amazon or wherever you want and order huge quantities of plastic spiders. So you can order these little black spiders that you scatter across the floor to freak people out, right? And I started thinking about the plastic spider factory. What's it like to work in the plastic spider factory? I know, I'm sure it's in China, right? I mean, that's where all these things, we source all these things from China these days. And so, there's a whole bunch of people, like they're, every day they go to work, because like if you go in the grocery store around Halloween, like there are bags of these things. Every day someone goes to work, many people go to work, and they're like, okay, another day at the plastic spider factory. And then I thought, what do they think America is like? <laughs> like right? And I have to say, I don't think this is good work. This does, I don't think human beings are made to make plastic spiders. I mean, I understand they're entertaining, but something's not right about a world that just produces millions of these things for the momentary thrill at Halloween for consumers somewhere halfway across the world. There's so much toil in the easy everywhere economy. And it's so easy to avert our eyes from it, but I think we should take it more seriously. And interestingly, it's not just the toil of the production of it, but even those of us who benefit from it find ourselves, as we all realized when I sort of painted that completely unrealistic picture of how relaxed and rested we are, we all feel like easy everywhere has somehow turned into toil all the time, uh, even for the people who benefit the most. So Ben Evans works here in Silicon Valley for Anderson Horowitz, and he had this tweet a few years ago that I think captures some of the strange way that Easy Everywhere has gone wrong. Uh, So it's like this little prose poem. He says, 
Calendars allocate time slots, but without any actions. To-do lists allocate actions, but without time slots. Email is a to-do list anyone can edit, but without actions or time slots allocated. Then people use calendar invites as email, and email for calendaring, and you just feel the anxiety growing, and you're like, this is so true, this is so true, right? And, but I think the most clear and anxiety-provoking thing in the whole thing is, the, is this middle line. Email is a to-do list anyone can edit. But that is crazy. And that's also the fruit of easy everywhere. Then in fact, we've reduced the friction of people being able to insert themselves into your life and your agenda just by sending an email to andy.crouch at gmail.com. Don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> because it's, it's, too, it's so easy that the work proliferates faster than our human capabilities can keep up. So we end up strangely in a world where more and more things operate by themselves where more and more is easy, it actually then just kind of turns around and starts to corrode the rhythms and the boundaries that we need to live really healthy lives. At least that's how it feels to me. And then of course, we start just dreaming of leisure. And one way to think about leisure, I think, is um, it's not rest. So rest is the glad contemplation of work completed. Rest is the glad contemplation of work completed. This is how God is portrayed on the seventh day in Genesis. Um, and it's that feeling when you're at the end of something that took a lot of work and was hard to do, and you're done, and it's, it was worth doing, and you just, you don't have to do anything more, you just observe it. It's when you finish a piece of woodworking, when you've composed a piece of music, when you've written a term paper and it's done, and then you rest. Leisure is not like that. Leisure is escape from toil, there's no celebrating of the toil. Leisure is just like, gosh, I gotta get away from that. And instead we go to basically entertainment and distraction that's, that allows us to just forget the toil. It's not about contemplating what we did. It's about escaping from what we did. And the interesting corollary is leisure almost always requires someone else to work for us to enjoy the leisure. So if you make a big, if you maybe you go to church here at Reality and on a Sunday you make a, uh, maybe you go home and you make a big meal. There's, there's work in that, to be sure. But then if everybody sits down at the meal, then you kind of enjoy the meal that you made. That's rest. That's work and rest. But if after church you dial up DoorDash and you're like, oh, I'm so glad we don't have to cook today. I mean, Sunday is my day off. I'm just so grateful. I can just, you know, order out. Well, there's a whole ghost kitchen somewhere where people are working, if not toiling, and their work purchase you, purchases your leisure, and the food you eat is not food that you made that you gladly enjoy, but the fruit of someone else's work, hopefully good work, but it's, it's not rest in this sense. Does that make sense? And leisure is not restorative in the way that rest is. And we all know this. All of us have our escape routes and we all know that after a couple hours of those escape routes, whether it's three episodes of you know, The Office or whatever you're watching these days, or, um, you know, scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. We don't feel at the end, oh, I feel so rejuvenated. <laughs> we just feel sort of icky and further spent because it's not glad contemplation of work done. It's, an, it's this attempted escape and it actually just drains us. And it leads to this distinctly modern thing called boredom. <laughs> boredom. Let's put up the definition, because I can't remember what it is. Oh, yeah. 
the state of being weary and restless through lack of interest, as in the boredom of a long journey by horse. <laughs> no. Like, I mean, I'm sure it was a little tedious to go on long trips by horse, but you, if you're on a horse, you are engaged. Like you are feeling the wind and the air and the sun and the rain and the, the creature itself. Like, I don't think anyone, even on long trips on horses thought, boy, this is getting, you know, I'm sure they wanted to get where they were going, but they didn't say I'm bored. And I know they didn't say they're bored because in fact, the word boredom does not appear in the English language until 1853. It is not until the dawn of the Industrial Revolution when we started to build first factories that kind of operated autonomously on their own and machines bigger than humans that did things for us. Um, it's not until the middle of the 19th century that the English language even has a word for one of the most quintessentially modern experiences, which is being bored. And no other language has a word for it either. Uh, we, you know, there's this French word, ennui, but ennui before the 19th century just means to be annoyed, which is what it sounds like it would mean. It, it doesn't, it, it becomes lassitude, boredom, you know, that meaning arises really at the dawn of the 20th century for ennui. So there, basically, until the rise of devices, nobody was bored. Because we were always, by requirement in a way, heart, soul, mind, strength engaged in the world. And it's only when we are given this option of heart, soul, mind, strength, disengagement, leisure, that we find ourselves like, whew, I'm really bored. We have not reckoned with how much this is changing us, changing our homes. What happens when the home, rather than being a place itself of work and rest, becomes just a domain of leisure to escape from an outside world of toil? or for the last two years, toil from home <laughs> and then try to like move over to the couch and watch Netflix to get away from the toil you've been doing, you know, at the other end of the couch. Um, what happens to our relationships with each other when, when much of the time we sort of feel this vague need for distraction, this need to relieve boredom? Well, it's had very, very serious consequences on our health at every level. The defining disease until the last two years, which were an infectious disease blip, but the defining disease of the Western world, the technological world, is not an infectious disease. It's the first time in history that the biggest single kind of category of disease is not an infectious one. Because the defining disease of our time is metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, uh, coronary artery disease, uh, I'm missing uh, a high blood, high blood sugar, um, and it's the result of inactivity. It's the result of a world that no longer asks you to exert yourself in the world with strength. And there are corollary diseases for heart, soul, and mind as well. The Journal of Pediatrics in 2019 was this kind of stunning graph just to pick one of, you literally can find a hundred graphs like this in the literature now. This is a series over time of the prevalence among 10 to 12 year old males and females, the females in red, the males in blue, of self-poisoning, attempts at suicide by poisoning. This, the age again depicted here is 10 to 12. This is not, uh, this is not you know, most suicidality kind of really kicks in in the teenage years. This, these are 10 to 12 year olds 
and look at what's happened to the girls. But in some ways, equally interestingly, poisoning, uh, for whatever reason, tends to be chosen by girls when they want to harm themselves. But we now are seeing a rise in it among boys as well. And literally an index after index of health, not least of children, we see this hockey stick take off in the mid-2000s. And there, I'm sure there's complex reasons for it. I don't pretend to know all of them. Something's not right. And I actually think, I think it's not that hard to guess. If you are a heart, soul, mind, strength, complex designed for love, and there's never an opportunity to develop and extend your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength into the world, you are going to lose interest in life. You're going to become over, you're going to be overcome by certain kinds of anxiety. You're, you're living in a world that asks very little of you and thus develops very little in you. And that's our world. We need to change course. Let's go back to that uh, you know, um, well, uh, sorry, I'm just looking at my notes. I'm also looking at my time. Wow, I am not using my time well. I have like 40 more minutes and I have, it says four minutes to go. Oh boy, that's exciting. Um, yeah, so let's, well, I'll race through uh, the rest that I have to say and then we'll, we'll all talk. Let's go really far back and rethink what we were made for. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all, this is of course where I got this, <laughs> all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children when you, and talk about them when you're at home, when you're away, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When Jesus of Nazareth was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He went like every single rabbi and every single Jew to this text, the Shema Yisrael, which is just the first two Hebrew words, hear, O Israel. Love the Lord your God. You're designed for love. Love with what? With heart, soul, and then Jesus adds mind for some reason in the gospels. Your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This is what we're made for. Go, now we can go to that next slide, Nate. Let's go back to this chart. And I wanna point out something. Below the line is essentially autonomy and disengagement. Autonomy for the devices, disengagement for us. And what's below the line is actually, it has its value, all right? So I'm not saying it doesn't have value. But the value it has is basically for production and consumption. If you wanna produce at scale, you would do well to employ a device and the industrial analogs in factories and so forth. And of course, you'd want to extend that until you get this kind of easy everywhere, super highly, highly scalable, low friction production. It's also great for facilitating consumption. If you want a million plastic spiders, no one's going to make them for you by hand. It's not, there is no artisanal plastic spider-like source. It's going to be done through devices, right? Very good for production and consumption below the line. But above the line is where all formation and all creation happens. All formative experiences for human beings happen above the line. We are not formed when things operate on their own or our behalf. 
We are formed when we develop our heart, soul, mind, strength, capacity, extend it through tools that require skill, whether it's a hammer or a pen or a typewriter even. Uh, we've, we have to learn how to wield that thing. And uh, so we have to be, if we want to be formed, we have to be above the line. And if we want to actually create, we have to be above the line. So technology was really good for producing and distributing my books. Technology did nothing to make me the kind of person who could write a book. Like, I think it's literally true. There's nothing that devices ever did that added to my ability to have something to say even in this room tonight. All that happened above the line. There are three environments that are the most formative environments for human beings, perennially, I think. And it's above all the home. This is where we begin our journey of becoming human. Also the school, where we are inducted into the cultural tradition and legacy of a certain cultural story. And I would also say church or synagogue or place of worship, the place where we make contact with the ultimate. And these three formative environments are where I'm most concerned that we not introduce devices. Does that make sense? I don't really mind too much that we use all this stuff at work. Now we could talk more about how it works and doesn't work at work and how to fix email and all that stuff. But look, work is about producing and, and, and there's a place for consuming. But in the formative places, we need to move back above the line. Now, let me talk briefly about that in the, ha ha ha, one second I have left. It turns very bright red when I run out of time. This is a 45 minute timer. I'm sorry, I'm gonna go for like five more minutes. Uh, is, that, is that okay? Um, okay, I just wanna be accountable um, and just admit I'm behind. Um, in the formative environments, we want, we want to move back above the line. Now, there's two ways to think about it. One is, of course, you might hear this and you're like, oh, you're talking about subtracting things. You're th talking about screen time limits, right? <laughs> well, kind of. And there are some really good subtractive strategies. Uh, so even in the work world, for example, I think about Cal Newport's book, which I'm sure a lot of you have read, Deep Work. I think about just, you know, the cover there, just to sort of stand in for lots of people who are thinking about how do we, um, how do we, kind of remove some of these distractions so that we can do the creative work because some work is just production and distribution, fine to use technology below the line. But if your work involves creation or even the formation of persons who can create something together, you have to subtract some things below the line and get back to that persons and tools uh, frame. Then of course, there's a whole bunch of people thinking about things like the light phone that subtracts certain features of Easy Everywhere and make them less available. And I remember being uh, there when Kai, I forget Kai's full name, but the designer of the light phone presented to an audience not so different from this. And it was so funny, because it, like, it was like you took Steve Jobs' famous, famous keynote speech introducing the iPhone where he said, it's a phone. It's a music player. It's an internet communicator. And as he adds each one, the crowd gets more excited. He's like, no, it's all together. Well, when Kai presented the life on he was like, it doesn't have a photo, a camera. And be like, oh, good. It doesn't have Instagram. Oh, great. You know, like they were celebrating subtraction. Like it was like, it, they got more excited the fewer features it had. So there's a place for subtraction. But I don't think that's actually gonna solve the thing. I think we need to do something different. And I actually wanna go back to uh, this thing I love, which is coding. So when I'm doing this, of course, in one way, I'm using high technology. I'm using a whole technological stack. But this, to me, is beautiful. <laughs> My heart leaps at the sight of color-coded Python. <laughs> 
right? And uh, my mind was involved in this. Now, I will admit I didn't exert a lot of strength, okay? That's, we have to fix that, actually. But this was a heart-soul-mind activity for me because it wasn't operating as a device. It wasn't operating on its own. Instead, it was actually a new kind of tool that's highly technological. And we have a word for this. And this is, it's not so much that we need to subtract things as we need to go back and add some things. And what we need to add is what I wanna call instruments. Instruments are a new kind of tool, let's say. Now I know we've used that word for a long time, but think about medical instruments that allow a very skilled human being who needs to bring heart, soul, mind, and strength to the work to extend her capacities or his capacities in the, in the service of healing and, and restoring the human body. And they can be super high tech, but, the, but even the da Vinci-like surgical system, which people sometimes call the surgical robot, in fact, that requires a highly skilled surgeon to operate it at every moment. It just extends that surgeon's ability by allowing them to operate through tiny little incisions rather than ma major incisions. So instruments, medical instruments, scientific instruments. I'm married to a physicist. Catherine's an experimental physicist. She uses super high technology, dilution refrigerators, laser tables, um, all this stuff that I have no idea how it works. I stand very meekly in the middle of the room and try not to worry about the hissing cauldrons, which she literally has in her lab. And all of that high technology is not operating on its own because it's being used by human beings at the frontiers of scientific discovery. They're putting all of themselves into it. When they go home at the end of the day, it hasn't been toil. It's been good work. And, uh, and many days it's hard and the thing doesn't work. But some days you get to rest and publish a paper and say, hey, we learned something about the world together using instruments. And then of course, musical instruments. They can be very, very complex, but a human being has to play them. So basically, the main thing I want to suggest we do and you all are more responsible for this than like any room I'm ever in, is basically uh, redirect most of our energy from building devices to building instruments. Technology that fully respects the human constitution as a heart, soul, mind, strength, complex, designed for love. The very interesting about this thing, interesting thing about this thing, is that it can either be the ultimate device or the ultimate instrument. I can either use this as the ultimate distraction, the ultimate like boredom reliever that will actually make me more bored, <laughs> or I can use it only in ways that every time I pick it up, I'm somehow doing it to extend my heart, soul, mind, and, and maybe even strength in the world. And we could redirect all of our technology in that direction if we, if we started to want to do that. Now, along the way, our family found a few things that helped us, and I will say them in the matter of moments here. We changed a lot about the way we lived so that heart, soul, mind, strength, life was just at the center of our house. The first thing we did was we reshaped the space we live in, lived in. And so just a very simple principle that I write more about in TechWise Family. We, this was our sort of family motto. We wanna create more than we consume. We wanna live above the line, especially as a family. So we moved the TV to the basement. We exiled the laptops to one kind of parking spot in the, on the first floor. And we filled the center of our home with tools and instruments, art supplies, grand piano, Steinway Grand. We spent our kids' college savings on it when they were three and five. Because any kid can go to college. Like, what's, nothing special about that. But having a Steinway in your living room, that's awesome, right? Um, but every day it sits there 
And it's like it's sister saying, you want to try playing me? You want to practice? You know, it doesn't play on its own. Not a player piano, not a device, but it's this beautiful thing that makes beautiful music if you'll learn how to play it. It's this constant invitation in the center of our house. Lots of books, a craft table for the kids. So I have a couple of just suggestions. Next slide. Um, Oh, yeah, by the way, I would actually add, fill the center of your school this way. I cannot tell you how radically I do not think uh, glowing rectangles belong, especially in primary and secondary education. I see their utility as, as kids get older, but it, they'll have the rest of their lives to be tethered to those things. <laughs> Give them tools and instruments. Uh, and if it is a glowing rectangle, make sure it's used in an instrumental way. Same thing in the church. Um, so things you can think about are, uh, next slide, uh, how could you move, this is a family that, I, I thought about how small the spaces are a lot of you probably live in. This is a family who live in a single, uh, you know, one bedroom apartment, I think, with three kids. So this is one side of their room where they, they put all the laptops and the production consumption stuff in one corner, and then the other, the other side, they put all the instruments. <laughs> so even though they couldn't, like, move everything to the basement, because they don't have a basement, they could create a zone that's the kind of tech zone, but then there's also the instrument zone, the, the tool zone, the creating zone. Uh, another family that lived in Taiwan um, uh, turned their dining room table, I mean, this is the only space they have, and so they turned it into a, a game table, and there's a piano there. Like, it's not pretty, it's not like home beautiful, but, or apartment beautiful, but perfect place for kids to exercise heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you could do this too. Uh, you know, I think I put some questions here. Um, oh, well, there's, here's just another example. This is third graders in Boston were asked to design the perfect playground, and so they designed a phone locker. <laughs> like the third graders, the third graders, no. You should not have phones on a playground, so no phones allowed, unless it is an emergency, which I like that, uh, sort of practical. So you could go home, sketch out the most used room in your house, Figure out where are the devices, where are the tools and instruments? How could you move the devices to a less central location? How do you, could you move the tools and instruments to a more central location? I now have met like hundreds of families who have actually literally redesigned the space they live in along these lines and just shift, shift a little bit towards above the line life together. And then the other thing we did was we uh, totally rethought how we did time. We need a rhythm of work and rest so in our family, as the kids were growing up and still today, one hour a day, for us, that's dinner time. One day a week, uh, for us, that's Sunday. And one week a year, for us, that's in August, when our family's able to go away from home and have a little vacation. We turn off, we turn off everything with a switch, not just the screens. Uh, electric lights, we turn them off one hour a day, and we light candles. And it turns out, candlelight dinner is amazing. And kids love it. And I will say, I've been married for 27 years, and I love my wife, Catherine, but there's something about when you turn off the electric light and you light a candle, you're like, oh, you glow with, I remember you glowing like this when we were, didn't have all these lines and gray hair. It's, it's, it's very romantic, let me tell you. It's awesome. Why not do this? Why not have one hour a day where nothing operates on its own and we're back in the realm together of heart, soul, mind, strength, engagement? It's so fun. All right, I'm so sorry I went really long. I have two stories to finish with. One, riding in the car, 16 and 13 year old at this point. Timothy's the older one, he's the older brother. 
and they're talking about how weird our family is. <laughs> we were really weird. And especially how his sister is saying, it's so hard, I'm in middle school and there are all these shows that our family doesn't watch and all my friends talk about and I just feel awkward, you know? And Catherine and I are in the front, we're just listening. And Timothy says, well, Amy, you have to understand our family is different because our parents are intentional about what's good for us. And not all parents kind of think it through, but our parents have really thought about that. And yes, it's hard now, but actually it's really good to live the way we do. And Catherine and I are listening to this conversation in the back and we just silently high five. <laughs> our parents are intentional. Those words came out of my 16 year old's mouth. I'm like, we didn't totally blow it. And I'll tell you, they're 24 and 21 now. And they would say, they were, they're more radical than I am. They're not on social media at all where there's, I still use Twitter as my leisure thing. Uh, and they are so grateful. They're so grateful. And they're so different. <laughs> and they found amazing friends who want to be different even if they weren't raised this way because everybody wants a way out of this world of toil and leisure. Especially the young people want a way out. Um... We did a little challenge for people to try a TechWise life, and my friend Simon put this on Twitter, actually, a picture um, of his family. He said, uh, <laughs> decided to try our first TechWise Sabbath as a family. We lit candles, played a card game, then had a, a Bible study led by the 14-year-old, sang some songs, and then had an early night to bed. <laughs> <laughs> a Bible study led by a four, the 14 year old. Try living this way. Things will happen in your home and with your kids and with you that you never imagined, and it'll be so good. A lot better than easy everywhere. Thank you very, very much for your time and attention. So, glad.